Now, a big, we're going to keep going in the book of Luke here. And we've been reading this book for, I don't know, ever. We're in the, I have to number them when I put them on the podcast. We're somewhere in the 70s uh, sermons through the book of Luke so far. So we've been in this for quite a while. But if you think about it, that's a little weird, isn't it? A bunch of, you know, I don't know, regular people in the, you know, 2020s hanging out and reading, spending 45 minutes, if I'm being generous to myself, per week, uh, reading a 2,000-year-old document. That's a little odd, isn't it? Like, there's not really anywhere else in our culture that this happens. And why do we do it? Well, one big knock on our faith, too, is this, uh, that you know you hear around, is that Christianity has nothing to do with the real world today. It has nothing to do with today's issues, with the modern world. It's this ancient book, and it's, you know, it might have been great for some backwoods, first century Jewish folks and, the, you know, like this early church kind of people. But, I mean, they were facing completely different problems from what we're facing today. So the question, though, is, does the Bible speak to the lives that we lead today? I think it does. And I think we've been talking about it for a couple of years um, because it does. Now, today what we're going to read, though, is this is a pretty short introduction. I don't have a cute story or nothing. There's no TV shows today, guys. I, let's see, what TV shows? Oh, I have one later. All right. Uh, <laughs> um, no, but like, here's the thing. Uh, the Bible does speak to the situation that we live in today. And it actually does something that's really cool that not a lot of other books do because it's divinely inspired. The Bible cuts across culture and it cuts across time. So what I mean by that is when Christianity moves into a culture, what happens is um, that culture keeps the things that make that culture great that aren't idolatrous. And Christianity speaks to those people in the culture that they live in. That happens also in time. Christianity doesn't just speak, like right now, the center, well, there is no center of Christianity. But if there was, you could kind of say the center of Christianity has moved. If you think about it, where did it start? The Middle East. And then where did it move to? Greek-speaking, kind of Roman world. And then into parts of Africa. And then really dominated in Europe throughout you know, most of the life of our faith. Uh, but it was in Africa and some other places too. Then to the New World, you know. And right now, though, the places where Christianity, we would say, is the center of Christianity is Latin America and China are the two places where Christianity is spreading like wildfire. So our faith, it does this. It's really cool the way the Lord works. And these scriptures speak to people in cultures that are nothing like ours, but they also speak to people in different times, different eras. And it's going to keep going and it's going to keep happening. Now, today what's going to happen in this text is Jesus is going to get all Old Testament prophetic. right? He's going to get all Ezekiel and Isaiah. right? He's going to kind of sound like these guys. And what he's going to do is he's going to give some prophecy. And in that prophecy, he's going to speak to things that are going to happen in a few weeks from when he gives the prophecy. He's going to give some prophecy about some things that are going to happen about 35 years after this prophecy. And then he's going to give some prophecy and some things that are going to happen throughout the whole church age. And then he's going to end by telling us how the whole world ends, right? How it's the end of the world as we know it. And Jesus feels fine. 
That's a great song, right? If you know, okay. All right, so let's jump into this. Verse something here. Where are we? We're going to start in verse 5, and we're going to read. We got like a million verses to read. That's why the intro was no TV shows. All right, verse 5. And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said. Okay, so remember, they're in the temple where Jesus just had the uh, theological rap battle, the honor contest with these guys. Then last week, we read about how he said, now, don't be like these scribes. Um, uh, because this and that. And then he had the widow. Uh, he saw the widow giving her a couple of pennies into the offering box, and he praised the widow for what she did. Um, so this whole thing, this whole section has been taking place in the temple. Now, at some point, let me tell you about the temple real quick. There's actually, when you read about the temple, there's actually four of them, three and a half. So in the desert, God said to Moses, hey, I need you to build a tent, and it's going to be real big. It's called the tabernacle. And it's going to be almost as big as the tent that I accidentally bought on Amazon because I didn't read the sizes, you know. I was just like, I want the biggest one. And it's like a little mansion, you know, like Harry Potter tent on the inside kind of thing. So God says, I want you guys to build this tent. It's called the tabernacle. That was like the pattern, the first temple, but it was mobile. It moved around with the people. And then uh, it eventually settled in, in the land of Israel where the Ark of the Covenant was all that. At some point, another guy came along named Solomon. He built a temple. This temple, you guys, it was something else. That's what the Bible says, exact quote. Uh, and it was pretty dope. And it was huge, and it was covered in gold. And I mean, it was one of the most magnificent buildings of the ancient world. And then that temple got destroyed by the Babylonians. Like, not destroyed like how my house right now is destroyed, right? If you go home, there's stuff everywhere. But then what's going to happen is I'm going to clean it up, and it'll still be my house. It was destroyed, destroyed, like all the way gone. So they go, the people go into the exile. Seventy years goes by, a little more than, then a little more than seven years, they rebuilt the temple kind of timelines. We won't get into that. So they come back after about 70 years, and they build another temple. And that, guy, that temple was built by a guy named... Nope. That, uh, come on. Not, let's take turns, guys. Zerubbabel, come on. Bar My old pastor used to always say, Barney's Zerubbabel. <laughs> yeah, that's good stuff. Uh, oh, where was I? Oh, yeah, so Zerubbabel builds a temple. But what happens when Zerubbabel builds the temple is all the old guys and the old gals who remembered the temple from before. People still say gals, right? That's a thing. Uh, they remembered the temple from 70 years ago. They start crying. They look at this temple, and they kind of go, hmm, this temple kind of sucks. I remember Solomon's temple. That was something else. So what happens is some time goes by. So that's the third temple. Well, Tabernacle, Solomon, Barney's Zerubbabel. The fourth temple is eventually a guy named Herod the Great comes along. And he looks at Barney's Zerubbabel's temple and he goes, this temple blows. I'm going to build a better one. So he remodels it. And it's one of those things where, you know, in San Francisco, um, there's a building like this on Franklin. There's certain rules about remodeling a building where you, you have to keep the front of it kind of a thing, right? So it's barely the same, but the whole back of it is like a brand new building, and it's like the brick face of the old building. That's kind of what Herod the Great did, except then he just kept going and going and going. And Herod's remodel lasted till after Herod was dead. The whole remodel went about, took more than 50 years. So that the remodel finished in 63, yeah, 63 A.D., 
And then it got burned down in 70 by the Romans, and we'll talk about that in a minute. So they had seven years of this beautiful Herod's temple. So during the time of Jesus, this temple was magnificent, but it was still kind of under construction. And so, <coughs> sorry, oh, I stand next to John too long. Um, what happened in the, uh, just kidding, happened uh, is they're all hanging out in the temple, and it says here, they were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings. So they're in this big, giant building. Remember, hundreds of thousands, maybe even like a million people are in Jerusalem on this pilgrimage. So they don't see the temple all the time. And what are they acting like? The tourists who've never been downtown, who are walking into you with their phones in one hand and their eyes up like this, bumping into everything, you know. Okay, here's the thing, though. If you ever are downtown, you know, so let me turn my phone off here. Um, oh, thanks. Look at that. Uh, if you ever are downtown and you look up at the buildings, it's actually pretty cool. I can see why the tourists do it, right? But it's still very annoying. So this is what they're doing. And they're looking at this building and they're admiring it. Wow, this is so great. Now, this building, this temple building was a symbol of their nation. It was like their version of the Washington Monument or the White House. Or I've never been to D.C., but I assume if I did, I'd be annoying. I'd be like, whoa, look at the, you know, looking around at all this stuff. It's hard for people to imagine, especially people in sort of a stable society like ours, it's hard for us to imagine America falling. Isn't it? Like, for real? Like, really, do you prepare for it? Do you have cans at home in the basement? Because, you know... It's tough, right? Like, we, we don't think about that. We don't think about our own nation, like, losing and a, a drastic change happening. Like, um, if you lived in Romania, you could imagine Romania falling. You know why? Because you remember when it happened in, I don't know, was it 89 or something like that, 90, early 90s? Ceausescu and the Rom, uh, Romanian communists fell, right? That was a big deal. So if you lived through that, you can imagine something like that happening again. But if you've lived your whole life in basically a peaceful-ish time, it's hard to imagine something like that happening in your country. And so um, Jesus is about to talk about this, their country falling and all this stuff, right in the middle of all of them looking at this beautiful building that's like the symbol of their country. And Jesus uses this moment to say, guys, it's not always going to be like that. It's not always going to, you're not always going to have this sort of safety that you have now. And so he says, as for these things that you see, the days will come when there will, um, there will not be left one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So Jesus' prophecy here is about, we've, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, because he, this is, I don't remember, I didn't write this down, but I think his second or third time making the same prediction in the Gospel of Luke. But what happened was the Romans, the, the Jewish people revolted against the Romans. The Romans were the power in charge. And the Jewish folks, some of these zealots and some of these other folks revolted. The terrible part was the revolt, the Jewish revolt, it wasn't like one big army revolted. It was like a whole bunch of cell groups revolted. And for the Romans, that's very easy to squash. They weren't organized at all. So the Romans came in and the Romans did what the Romans do. Um, if you are part of the Roman Empire... It kind of sucks because the Romans are in charge. But on, another, uh, on, another, on the other hand, it's peaceful, at least, for the most part. You're not going to worry about folks invading you. Uh, 
And if you revolt, though, if you're not part of that Roman group, the Romans were brutal, right? The Romans were, oops, don't hit the fire. Uh, The Romans were not playing around with their enemies. And so when these Jewish folks revolted, they were not messing around. They sent in a guy named Vespasian. He had to leave in the middle of it to go become the emperor. And then his son Titus took the army into the city of Jerusalem, and it was absolutely brutal. And I told you this before, but what happened was originally... Vespasian gave Titus orders. Hey, don't burn the temple. It's one of the most beautiful buildings in the entire world. So he comes in, and then a fire started in the city, and the temple was covered in gold, and all the gold melted through the rocks, like the stone, the cracks in the stones. And so to get the gold out, they had to break the entire temple apart. And so they did. And so when Jesus says, not one stone will be uh, you know, left on another or whatever, he's, that's exactly what happened. Now, here's the, it's kind of cool. Jesus makes this prophecy in the 30s, sometime in the 30s AD. Uh, when Jesus, all this was happening is up for debate. We're not going to get into that now. But sometime in the 30s, let's say, Jesus was making this prophecy. This happened in 70 AD. So what's the math on that? That's like predicting, I don't know, let's say 9-11 in what, the 60s? Is that about right? Yeah. So everybody else is thinking about Vietnam. And you go, hey... These Arab, you know, from Saudi Arabia and all this, they're going to get on these planes and they're going to come and these terrorist groups, and they're going to knock down the Twin Towers that don't even exist yet, so that's a bad example. They're going to knock down some big buildings in New York and they're going to crash a plane into the Pentagon. And you're like, why are you, wor-? you know, this is, we're talking about Vietnam. It's pretty insane that Jesus makes his prophecy when he does. Verse 7, and they said to him, teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? So, that's a pretty good question. Hey, your entire world is about to come collapsing down and the temple is going to be destroyed. The logical next question is, when? Right? Now, uh, this is kind of a sidebar. Just real quick. Um, I love scriptures because there's so many things in the scriptures that seem like, yeah, that's how that would have happened. Okay, if... You ever watch a TV show? You ever notice this on TV shows? Nobody ever reacts to things the way that they should in real life. And it drives me bananas, right? You know, and not in like a funny way, like it's supposed to be like in Seinfeld when Susan dies and they all go, okay, you want to go get some coffee? Because they're terrible people. That's the joke. But in other shows, it's just like, wait, if somebody really came in and said that to you, the next thing you would be like is, when's that going to happen? You know, and they just go, oh, that's a bummer, and they move on to the, you know. This is one of those, like, very realistic. They want to know when this is going to happen. And, of course, how does Jesus always answer a question? Either with a question or, like, by not really answering it. (laughs) Answering what they should have asked. Or giving a vague sort of, you know. Okay, so that's what Jesus does here. Now, we need to explain something. Uh, Wait, are we on? I'm going to jump to the end. I put this slide at the end. I need to explain this to you, though. This is some drawing skills. My name's John. I do drawings. Okay. I drew this the other day. You guys, it's really good. This is an NFT if anybody wants it. (laughs) Just kidding. (laughs) Okay. So in prophecy, in biblical prophecy, we use this illustration uh, of a mountain range. Now, what happens is a lot of times prophets are looking and describing something. But what they're doing is they're describing a mountain range. 
And when you are in Denver, if you've ever been to Denver, and you look out at the Rockies, you know, that highway that goes out of Denver, if you've ever been there, it looks at the Rockies. Um, one time I was heading that way on my motorcycle, and I was like, I think I've made a terrible mistake. And it turns out I had. Uh, but when you look at it, it just looks kind of flat. Does it? Oops. It looks kind of flat. You don't see the, le- it's hard to get the 3D effect of a mountain range that's far away. So that guy right down there, that's the prophets on the bottom. And he's looking at the mountain range, and he's describing what he sees. And he says, this is what this mountain looks like. But what he doesn't always see is that there's actually five or six mountains. And sometimes there's even a mountain he can't see. Do you see that? I drew that in there. Now, Jesus is going to do this today. And he is going to describe... Now, I I put Jesus up tall because here's the thing. He actually can see the whole thing. If you had asked Isaiah specifics about some of his prophecies, he wouldn't have known. He would have been like, I don't know, this is what the Lord told me to tell you, right? But Jesus knows it all. But at the same time, in the first century, he acts like a prophet. So he can see it all, but he's still describing things the way that the prophets do. Now, you could ignore that part about the church there. We'll get back to that. All right, let's get back to this here. Uh, Okay, so they asked him, when are these things, verse 7, going to happen? And this is his answer. This is a very long answer. This is called the Olivet Discourse this sermon here, um, because they've actually left the temple and he's teaching and the other gospels tells us. This is what he says. See that you are not led astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, and do not be terrified, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. So they ask him, when's the temple going to fall down? And what Jesus is going to do here is he's going to describe... The temple falling over or, you know, being destroyed. He's going to describe the whole period of the end times. And he's going to describe the second coming all sort of in one mashup prophecy. And so the first thing he says is look out for false messiahs. I'm not going to beat this to death because we've already talked about this a bunch. When we did the, um, the sermon on the second coming specifically, this is what I said. If you ever have to ask, wait, is that Jesus come back? Then it's not him. Okay, we'll get to this at the end here too. There's some more. He talks about the signs that will come with the second coming. But that's what's the deal. If you have to ask, it's not really Jesus. So false messiahs, just ignore them. The second thing is tumults, wars, and rumors of wars. So that that word could be translated rebellion, rebellion and war. This is what happened with the Jewish folks. So this prophecy has many layers to it because that's exactly what happened with the Jewish folks before the fall of 70 AD. And it's pretty much what's happened since then through the whole cycle of world history, hasn't it? Um, War and rebellion. All right, keep going. Verse 10. Then he said to them, nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and various places, famines and pestilence. And there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. Right, so he's expanding this past just the fall of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., and he's saying from the time that Christ leaves until the end, till he comes back, is going to be marked by this period of war and suffering. And, you know, we've talked before about Babylon as being the picture that the Bible uses to describe the way that the world system works. It's the cycle of Babylon. And so the end times, this whole period of the end times, which starts when Jesus left, ascended, and ends when he comes back. That's the end times is going to be marked by war. Now, the question is, is that true? Is that, has the world been basically marked by war since Jesus left? I mean, yeah, right? 
just look right now. I Googled this. There are, oh, wait, I forgot the number, eight or nine wars in the world right now that involve more than 10,000 soldiers. If you go under 10,000, the number like skyrockets. But just think of like the civil war in Yemen right now, the war in Ukraine. Like there, war is happening. And so that's the first thing Jesus says is the end times will involve Babylon going to war. The second thing he says is the end times will involve a fallen world. Right? There's going to be earthquake and floods and tsunamis and uh, hurricanes. And, and let me tell you, I live in San Francisco. There's earthquakes. Jesus wasn't kidding around. <laughs> right? I remember 89. Was anybody else here in 89? You were. You're like 100. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, you were there. Were you guys there in 89? Yeah. See, they remember. So earthquakes, right? But the point is sickness and all the things that we see in this fallen world are going to mark this sort of the end times. All right, but it won't be marked by just war generally and disaster. It's more targeted. Watch this. But before all this, they will lay their hands upon you. He's talking to his disciples and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and the prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds, not to meditate beforehand how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom, which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. So the end times is going to be marked generally by Babylon going to war with the other Babylon. But at the same time, they're going to try to squash the church. That's what Jesus says, is they're going to be coming after you specifically. And this describes almost perfectly the whole book of Acts, what's happening here. Um, The disciples at the beginning of the book of Acts are arrested by the Sanhedrin, like a bunch of different times. Uh, once they're beaten, at one point James uh, is executed. John's brother, not Jesus' brother, is executed. Peter's arrested at the same time, but then set free. Uh, Stephen is killed. Uh, Paul goes after the church and then becomes part of the church. And then Paul is persecuted in Philippi and Ephesus and some other places. So what Jesus describes here is exactly true. Um, But after the book of Acts, this continued. There were more persecutions, like with um, Nero, Emperor Nero. He killed Peter and he killed Paul. Go 30 years later, you have a guy named Domitian. Domitian? Is that how you say it? Domitian? Domitian? Right? He was, I mean, this was a brutal, brutal persecution of Christians. You go a couple hundred years later, you have a guy named Julian the Apostate. Like this, the Romans continued this sort of persecution. But even more astonishing is... This number, between 1900 and now, more Christians died for their faith than from 1899 to the Ascension. Like, world, persecution in the world has ramped up as time has gone by. And also, I mean, the numbers just statistically, right? Numbers increase as the population increases. But, you know, there are places where a lot of believers have been killed, like northern India has been recently specifically uh, very bad. And I read a story a while ago of a, a pastor who was pulled out of his church in the middle of church um, and they beat him to death in front of his kids. You know, it was like, it was, you know, stuff like this has been going on for a long time, right? And so Jesus, in the middle of this persecution, he says, the world is not going to like you. I need you to do two things. The first is trust God for your wisdom, right? Standing up to Babylon is terrifying. And what he says is, I need you to trust me in those moments, Right, so in Acts 3 and 4, there's a story. Peter and John go into the temple. They're heading to Solomon's porch, right? We're named after. And they see this beggar and they heal this guy. 
Then they give this beautiful sermon, and then they get arrested. Arrested. Hello. Well, it's still recording. Did the batteries die? There we go. I don't know. That one changed for some reason. Anyway, what was I saying? Oh, yeah, Acts 3 and 4. They heal the guy, give a sermon, get arrested. Peter, they say to Peter, hey, dude, I need you to cut it out with this Jesus business. Peter goes, yeah, okay. <laughs> That's cute. Right, I'm paraphrasing. To the guys who just killed Jesus. These are some powerful, powerful people. And Peter stands up to them. And then in Acts 4.13, um, it says this. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that they were uneducated, common men, and they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. See, Jesus' promise here was, came true, right? This prophecy. I'm going to tell you, I'm going to help you guys out. And the second thing is, so the first thing is, I need you to trust me. The second thing is, I need you to be bold and to bear witness. That's what he says. The Greek word there is actually, I need you to be martyred. The word bear witness. And what that word came to mean, it originally meant just like, um, uh, you know, sharing or like uh, preaching kind of a thing. That's what the word originally meant. But it became, the word sort of morphed into preaching to the point of death. Like being willing to be that bold. That even while they're killing you, you're still preaching the gospel. That's why the word, that's why we have the English word martyr, right? And so... Uh, Jesus' people, we win by losing. We win by dying, not through strength and power, but by preaching the gospel as we are persecuted. The book of Revelation flushes out a lot of what Jesus is talking about here. Um, Anyway, Jesus keeps going on. He says, you will be delivered even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and uh, some of you they will put to death. You will be hated for my name's sake, but not a hair on your head will perish. You will, by your endurance, you will gain your lives. So he says, Jesus is honest. He's talking about this age at the end times. He says, a lot of my people, you're going to be killed. And you're going to be betrayed by your own family. And in an honor, shame, clan kind of communal culture, that was a very shocking thing to hear. But not all of you are going to be killed. A lot of you will be hated. Right? This is kind of the moment we're in in the Western world. Christians, there's... Okay, I'll give you there's reasons that we have kind of brought on ourselves... And there's other reasons that why we're hated in the Western world, right? So the reasons we brought on ourselves, we're very, we've become very political Christians, and we think we've mashed faith and politics in a very unhealthy way. Um, we can be very legalistic Christians, and then trying to impose that without love on the people around us, that make you hate somebody pretty quick. Christians are terrible tippers at restaurants. I see this on Reddit a lot. People post. Oh, look, a bunch of church people came in and they tipped me and it looks like a dollar bill and it's actually like a gospel track, you know. Uh, So stuff like that. Um, Christians have handled sexual abuse stuff very poorly, right, in Catholic church and Protestant churches. It's not been handled very well in protecting children. So there's a lot of things we've brought on ourselves. But there's other just reasons Babylon hates us because our views about things like sexuality are... Uh, ethics and different things, they're at odds with what the culture teaches. Our view on sin seems weird to the people around us. Our views on things like truth, even that there is truth, uh, is odd to people. 
Um, right? The exclusivity of the gospel really puts people off. And so as we preach the gospel and we try to follow Jesus and be kingdom people, they're going to hate us. But here's this really weird thing. It says, but you won't be harmed. Now, okay, hold on. Didn't he just say a bunch of you guys are going to get killed, but you won't even be harmed? Okay, we found the contradiction. The whole Bible's garbage. Let's pack this up and go home, right? <laughs> no. Uh, obviously, he must be talking about this in different ways. Most people say, most of the theologians and scholars and folks say he's talking about spiritual harm. He means, because right after this, he talks about by your endurance, you will gain your lives, right? Your eternal life won't be harmed by these people. They, they, can, they can kill the body, but they can't take your salvation away. And so he, he says, I want you as your bearing witness, I want you to endure. And so in the end, we gain our lives, meaning we gain the life that we were supposed to have, a life with Jesus, a life back with God. So now Jesus is doing this thing. He's jumping around to the different mountains. Keep going. Verse 20. He talks now about the destruction of Jerusalem. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. That, verse is very, that word is very important. There's a section in the book of Daniel where he uses that same exact word. And a little while later, there was a guy named Antiochus Epiphanes who, during the intertestamental period, went into the temple, set up a statue of himself, and then sacrificed a pig on the altar. And they called that the abomination of desolation. And so Jesus uses this word on purpose to say, when you see this Jerusalem surrounded by armies, by these Roman armies, then you must know right, that the desolation, it's going to happen again. What happened before is going to happen again, has come near. Then let those who are in Judea, which is the area just around Jerusalem, let them flee to the mountains. Let those who are inside the city depart. Get out of town, guys. And let not those who are, in, who are out in the country enter it. For these are uh, days of vengeance to fulfill what is written. So what Jesus says is, if you're in the city, you need to get out. That's counterintuitive to everything people in the ancient world would have thought. If an army is coming, you need to get behind the city walls. You need to get where you can be safe during the siege, during whatever. And Jesus says to his people, no, don't do it. Get out. If you're in the mountains, run away. Or, sorry, if you're right outside town, flee to the mountains. If you're in the city, get out of there. I just read this book called um, A Week in the Fall of Jerusalem. And these books are really cool. They're called A Week in the Life of Corinth. A week, and it's just sort of a, like a novel about what it would have been like to be in Jerusalem. And in this book, the guy was, uh, I forget who wrote it, was saying, um, uh, like imagine, uh, who was it? It was Mary Magdalene was in Jerusalem at the time that this was going on, I think. And as the armies were coming, she says, man, what was it that Jesus said about, like, she was remembering this prophecy. Remember right before he died, a couple days before he died, we were sitting on the mountain on the side outside Jerusalem, and he was talking about this. And he said, we need to get to the mountains. And so she started rounding people up. And she was an old lady in the book, and they all head to the mountains. And that man, that really made this hit home for me. Because right? it's one thing to talk about the history of 70 AD, but it's another thing to think about. Jesus gave this prophecy to a bunch of real, actual people because this was really about to happen to them in a few years. And in giving this prophecy, probably saved a bunch of lives of, the, of his followers. I don't know, I just thought it was kind of cool, right? This, you know, this, as brutal as all this was, this prophecy was helpful. Well, he continues. Uh, oh, wait, sorry, there was... That slide got messed up there. He says, Alas for women 
who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. For there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against people, for they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led by led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles has been fulfilled. When Babylon gets, starts doing its thing and being all Babylon-y, you know, that's a thing. It's in the Bible somewhere. It's in the back. Don't look it up, though. Um, when it starts to get all Babylon-y, the first people to suffer are who? The vulnerable, right? The people on the margins, the people without money, This has always been the case. This is what Jesus is talking about here. He says, it's going to be a bummer for pregnant women and those, you know, because it's harder to pick up your whole life when you have a baby and run to the mountains than if you're a single guy, you know. So he's saying, it's a bummer. And then he gets into this thing. This is what's going to happen, though, during the time of the Gentiles. So in Mark, what he actually says is, um, he adds a part where he says, not just the time of the Gentiles, but the gospel must be preached to all the nations. Right, so this, again, it's the mountains. Right? He's describing the fall of Jerusalem, but he's also describing patterns that are going to happen throughout all of church history during a time when Gentiles are brought into the faith. And then verse 25, And there will be signs in the sun and moon and stars, and on the earth distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now, when these things begin to take place, straighten up, raise your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. So do you see, he's just described Jerusalem in the fall. Then he's talking a little bit about the mountain right behind it of Babylon. Now he jumps all the way to the end, the far back mountain, the second coming. And like I said, when this happens, it's going to be a worldwide event. You're not going to need to, you, there won't be sermons about this. You won't need to show up on Sunday and be, John, wait, was that the second coming of Jesus? No, 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 you'll know. It's going to happen, right? The second coming is going to be this, I don't know, I, I'm so curious, just like the, you know, I would say scientific guy in me, but I never passed a science class. Um, but just, you know, if he shows up on the Mount of Olives, how am I going to see him on the opposite side? of? I don't know. Right, he's God, though. He'll figure it out. <laughs> so when he comes, this is going to be this massive event. And he gives a couple commands here. Straighten up and raise your heads. This is a posture of confidence. Right, you see, for a lot of people, the second coming of Jesus is going to be the great and terrible day of the Lord, where they'll face the judgment of God. It's not going to be this magnificent day. But for his kids, or for you know, the, those adopted into God's family, it's going to be more like those videos, you know, where the soldier comes home and gets off the plane and his kids run up and give him a big hug, you know, after a year or whatever of not seeing their dad kind of thing. It's going to be like one of those for us. We're going to be so excited. And so he says, straighten up and raise your head. It's a posture of confidence for your redemption is drawing near. Because right now, you know what sucks? Us. We still have this sin within us and it, I hate it. <laughs> Right? And I can't wait until, it's like, you know when you have a cold, this might not apply to you because you might have this cough forever, but you know when you have a cold and you're in the middle of it and you tell yourself this isn't going to last forever, people get over colds, and this is terrible right now, but in a couple of days I'll be feeling better, and that sort of gives you a little bit of hope. Does anybody else do that or is it just me? And you try to remember what it was like to not have a cold. Oh, I remember when I could do this, you know, <laughs> 
right? That's kind of what we're doing here is we're struggling with sin. We're sick, but eventually we're not going to be. And this is the pinnacle of that sin is going to be removed. And this second coming of Jesus is amazing. In Revelation, it's described. Um, this is why the end of the Bible says this, right? Um, he who testifies to these things, that's John, says this. Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with us all. The Bible ends with two things. Jesus, hurry up, man. And when you come, bring us grace. Right? This is the hope that we have. And so Jesus, in teaching this, he's teaching his people about this, the second coming and what a great day this is going to be. So he tells them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and you know that the summer is already near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know the kingdom of God is near. So he's saying, you guys, you get the parable, right? It's like, what's the San Francisco version? Okay, Bart. Let's say Bart. You're on Bart. You ever take Bart? Has anybody been on Bart in a couple years, right? Nobody? Yeah, I have. Yeah, right. So you go on Bart, and you're waiting for the train. How do you know the train's coming? Okay, the announcement goes off. What else? You hear the sound. You feel the wind, don't you? And then... You do what I do, you go way over that yellow line, and you lean and look down the tunnel, and you see those lights coming right at you. When you see all that happening, you know the train is coming. So Jesus is telling his people, when you see all this stuff start to happen, you know that I'm just around the corner. Verse 32, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until this has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. All right, so this is important. I've heard this verse taught this way, these two verses. When I was younger, this is how this was taught to me. And it was frightening because I was in middle school and I didn't know what to think. But this is what they said. They somehow, whoever it was that taught me this, linked this prophecy to the nation of Israel in Israel right now. And they said Israel was reestablished in the 40s. And the people that saw that happen are not going to pass away before the second coming of Jesus, right? And I was like 12 or whatever. And I was like, wait, that means like before, I don't know, basically like our grandparents are dead, Jesus is coming back. So this was taught at my old church. And I remember somebody, one of the guys, I won't say who, because Melissa knows, well, yeah, anyway, said to me at one point, this is why I'm not going to have kids, right? Because this world is going to, you know, all this stuff's going to happen. There's going to be earthquakes and this whole thing and the second coming of Jesus. It should happen any minute now. Well, the guy obviously didn't believe it because he has two kids now, so I don't know. <laughs> That's why I had one. Um, so what is Jesus talking about here, though, when he says this generation will not pass away until all this has taken place? I'm going to give you five options. You ready for this? Option one, this generation means the disciples that he's talking to hearing this prophecy. And all of this stuff that's going to happen is the fall of Jerusalem. So option one is you guys are going to see the fall of Jerusalem at least. Option two, these disciples in front of him that he's talking to are going to see the end times. The end times being not just like seven years at the end of church history, but the whole period after Jesus ascends is like the end times. So they're going to see that start to happen. That's option two. Option three is sometimes the word generation is not used of a group of people born at the same time, but that word in Greek can also mean... <clears throat> a certain kind of people, right? So you could say like, it's kind of like how we would say, um, 
Americans, right? You could mean George Washington, you could mean Abraham Lincoln, or you could mean any of the cast of the Jersey Shore. The greats, you know? But they're all Americans, right? That's what it means. They all live very far apart. All right. So what the option three is, that this means that church people won't perish because of Babylon. That's the context. You've been talking about Babylon. And he says, this generation won't pass away, meaning Babylon is not going to squash the church. Option four, it's the same idea, except instead of this generation being church people, it's this generation is Babylon. Meaning during the entire age of the church, Babylon is going to be there. And they're not going to pass away until they see the second coming or, you know, see the end times. And then the fifth option is what the dispensational folks, our friends, our brothers and sisters in Christ who teach things about like the nation of Israel that I just said, um, is that this generation is the generation at the end times and they interpret that in various ways, including the one I just gave you. So at the end times, that generation is going to see it all the way through. Now, which one do I think? I think number one makes the most sense. The idea that Jesus is saying, you guys are going to see the fall of Babylon, um, the fall of not Babylon, the fall of Jerusalem. Because a lot of them did. But also, I think, uh, the, was that third and fourth one, that the church is going to last through the end times and so is Babylon. All three of those things are true and kind of make sense. So I, which one is it? It's, you know, I don't know. You ask Jesus when we're dead. All right, keep going. But watch yourselves, lest you be weighed down with dissipation. Is that how you say that? Is that what we're voting on? Yeah, okay. Uh, and drunkenness and the cares of this life And that day will come upon you suddenly like a trap, for it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the earth. So now he's back to the second coming. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape these things that are going to take place, and to stand before the Son of Man. And every day, so that's where the sermon ends, and every day he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went and lodged in the mount called Olivet, or the Mount of Olives. And early in the morning, all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. I don't like that part about early in the morning going to church, but the rest of this is pretty cool. (laughs) Right? I always say that. That's my least favorite verse in the Bible where Jesus gets up before dark to pray. All right, real quick, because we only have like three, four minutes here, and then we're done. Somebody needs to do their shirt laundry. You don't know that reference? You smell like It's that kind of church, huh? I just got a, a whiff of the old reefers, you know, San Francisco, church with the door open. You never seen that movie? You did, okay, that's nothing. Anyway, back to this. Back to the Bible, right? Okay, um, <clears throat> there's a part in the Old Testament that says this in the book of Deuteronomy. Basically, God tells his people, you're going to have prophets come and go. This is how you know if they're real. Uh, how they're asking, how, will, um, how may we know the word of the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is the word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. So basically, how do we know if this guy's a real prophet? Well, I don't know. If what he says comes true, if he's predicting the future, if it doesn't come true, then maybe he wasn't a prophet, right? It's not rocket surgery. That's what God tells them. Okay. With that in mind... This is my illustration again. We're back to this, you guys. It's still for sale. I just checked. (laughs) The NFT. No, here's the mountains prophecy. Okay, so these prophets are looking at the mountains. Now, 
Jesus has already described the first mountain, the fall of Jerusalem. And the way that he described it is exactly how it went down. Then he started to describe the next little mountain right after the fall of Jerusalem, or during that same time, you could actually say, about the way the church would be persecuted and how he would give his people words to say. And did that come true? It did, right? The whole book of Acts plays this out. But then what else does he say? The rest of the church age, the age that we live in, the end times, what's it going to look like? Babylon. And so there's going to be people coming after you and just war in general, it's going to stink. And the second part, though, is the world is going to continue to be fallen the way that it is. And you're going to have earthquakes and that sort of stuff. Has that come true? Yeah. So what I did there is I drew little red dots that you can't tell are red. They look pretty black on this screen, but they're red. I promise. Uh, And that's how far the church has traveled. Okay, so we're going up, and when we went down, and we're up. Okay, so we're right there in the middle of the the mountain range. Now, what part of this prophecy that Jesus said is going to happen has not happened yet? His returning. The great and you know, awful day of the Lord, you know, the day of the Lord, right? This, this great day where Jesus comes back in this quite a bit of fanfare. That part hasn't happened yet. Now, what God said in Deuteronomy is this. If you want to trust a prophet for something that hasn't happened yet, let's look at his track record. And then we decide, is this going to happen? And if we look at this whole prophecy here, Basically, Jesus hit everything on the head that we can look at and go, has that happened yet or not? He's batting a thousand. So I think the, what we need to do then <clears throat> is be the kind of people who live like we actually believe the next part is coming around the corner. Now, again, I don't know when he's coming back. Could be right now. I always do that. Oh, man, someday that's going to work. I do it enough. <laughs> now? No. Uh, someday, though, he is coming back, and it's going to be amazing, and we're going to be like those kids hugging their dad, right? We're going to be so excited to have the Lord coming back. And so until then, though, what do we do? How do we live like we actually believe that's going to happen? The key verse here was what he told his people to do during persecution. This is going to be your opportunity to bear witness, right? That's what we do. Paps to Blue Ribbon. We pray for people. We ask them about their lives. We bless them in ways nobody else would, We share our stories and we talk about the gospel. We live the kind of lives where we point people to this story and we say, guys, this is how it's going. And we can trust because we we can do this with confidence, right? Because we know what Jesus has said is happening next is actually happening next. The last point I'll say is this. We can do it with confidence because at the same time, he said two things. I need you to bear witness and I also need you to trust me as you're doing it. And we can trust him because we're not doing this by ourselves. The end of the Great Commission, you know the Great Commission? Go make disciples of all nations, the whole thing, right? The end of it is this. Behold, I'm with you to the end of the age, right? Jesus said, I'm going to send the Spirit to you. And the Spirit is going to dwell with his people during the whole end times age. So you don't have to do this by yourself. You don't have to stand up to Babylon by yourself, right? You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses. You will be my martyrs. That's the word. In where? Jerusalem and Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Right? Even to San Francisco. 
So let's be the kind of like, just think about your life, I guess, and be, what are you doing that shares that story with other people because you believe Jesus is actually coming back? Right? You believe that he, the way that he speaks to us here 2,000 years ago actually speaks to the world we live in now. And then just think about your life and worship, right? And say to Jesus, thank you for being with me, and now I want to be one of your people. I want to be kingdom people. I want to share the gospel with the people around me. All right, you guys want to stand and sing with us?